Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Razib Khan. Razib is a population geneticist, writer, and entrepreneur. He's a prominent voice in the realm of genetic genealogy, where he illuminates the interplay of genes, history, and culture. His writing has been featured in the New York Times, India Today, the National Review, and his scholarly work is cited in many scientific journals. In this episode, we talk about commercial genetic testing companies like 23andMe. We talk about the genetic histories of regions like Russia and China, Ashkenazis and Madagasy, that is, people from the island of Madagascar. We also talk about the Indo-Aryan connection. We talk about whether race is a social construct. We discuss the concept of epigenetics and so-called inherited trauma. We talk about what Cleopatra really looked like and more. Razib is a literal fountain of information on these topics, and his substack is super interesting, so you should all go check that out. It's called Unsupervised Learning, and I hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, Razib Khan. Okay, Razib Khan. Hey, what's up? Thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. So I've been aware of you for a long time, and I've been uh, enjoying your Substack recently, which is really excellent. You have these long, deep articles about population genetics and what it can tell us about history, and we're going to get into all of that. But before we do, can you give my audience a little bit of your bio? Like, how did you get into population genetics uh, as a field? And and um, and maybe we could talk a little bit about what you're up to these days, because I know you're out of academia now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, fairly typical in, uh, let's say, first generation um, children of immigrants. So I was born in Bangladesh, uh, moved here when I just turned five. I grew up in upstate New York, and then I spent most of my, let's say, formative years, adolescence in Oregon, uh, Eastern Oregon, Western Oregon. Um, you know, I went to University of Oregon. I majored in biochemistry, which is what you do uh, when you're pre-med. And then I realized I want to do medicine and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, I added a biology major with a focus on genetics. I didn't really know much about genetics, but I knew I was kind of interested in it. And I'd always been interested in evolution. And to really understand evolution, you need to understand genetics, right? And so um, this was the 1990s and genetics was was hot. I mean, this was when the Human Genome Project was happening. So that was always on my mind. Initially, I worked in IT. I did some programming database developing and stuff like that because I didn't really want to spend time um, on a bench. Okay, like, you know, working with a pipette and stuff like that. And that's what biologists do, or that's what molecular biologists do. And that was what my training was. And then um, I realized, you know, what I really like is more like mathematical modeling, um, understanding evolution, using allele frequencies. It's basically population genetics. Uh, I had a little bit of training in that. I went back and got a little bit of more training, um, some post postbacular work. And then I went to graduate school at UC Davis. My interest, uh, my, my PhD um, topic of interest was actually like domestication and quantitative evolution of uh, domestic dogs, domestic cats and stuff like that. So uh, I was really interested in what human civilization had done to animals that we had domesticated or that were pets or that lived with us. And, um, you know, 
that brings me to a second interest, which I've had, which, you know, I think you've seen in my Substack. You know, I'm really interested in human history and the human past. And this is not actually that surprising. I know a lot of people in STEM who have thought about majoring in history and they're like, oh, I'm just going to major in STEM. And I don't know why that is. I think it's because there's a lot of facts and it's just an interesting topic. You know, it's just like story of our species. And so basically over the last 10 years, the field of paleogenetics has emerged. And so paleogenetics is basically taking ancient DNA. So not DNA from, you know, we're, we're alive, but say DNA from someone that died 10,000 years ago and then sequencing it and getting all the information out. And just so your listeners have a clear understanding, we really understood or tracked like a couple of hundred genes in the human genome. And it wasn't even called the human genome then, like 30 years ago, right? So it's pretty amazing that you can take a whole genome of 19,000 genes from someone that died 10,000 years ago now. So we've, we've come orders and orders of magnitude. So um, the reason I write so much about population genetics and ancient DNA and history on my Substack is there's a lot of questions that used to be open questions that have been answered by these paleogenetic methods. Obviously, they can't answer everything like, okay, like what was, you know, the theological difference, uh, you know, of this particular sect in Anatolia? Okay, that's not a genetic question. But when people say um, concretely, okay, so the modern Greeks are not descended from the ancient Greeks at all. Well, Is that right? Well, They're that's not- actually wrong. Oh, that's wrong. But that was something that people started saying in the 19th century because what happened? So why did, what, on what basis did they say that? The basis is uh, basically, uh, and I have a Substack post on this, so yeah. uh, people out there can, can look it up. Uh, but uh, what happened in the 19th century, in the early 19th century, is classically educated Western Europeans, and particularly English, like Lord Byron, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, British people, uh, show up in Greece to help them with their revolution against the Ottoman Turks. And they did succeed. But one of the things that happened is they... They were like shocked at what the modern Greeks are like because they are not what's described in Herodotus or Thucydides or, or Homer, you know, because <laughs> that's what they knew of the Greeks. And so they're they, not sitting around, you know, drawing triangles and formulas and yeah, yeah. Modern Greeks, from their perception, Socrates were an, and Pythagoras. Yeah, we're an Oriental people, whereas the ancient Greeks are obviously a Western people. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying like that's literally true, but I'm saying this is what their perception was. Right. The ancient Greeks are the cultural ancestors of the West. So how can these people, uh, you know, these kind of like feuding, you know, argumentative Oriental Middle Eastern looking people uh, be the descendants of the ancient Greeks? So the hypothesis is, well, these are not the descendants of the ancient Greeks. What happened during the Roman Empire was a bunch of slaves came in from Syria and replaced the ancient Greeks. So that's the hypothesis, mm-hmm. right? Modern genetics to show that's not really true. Actually, I have a separate post on this, but basically slaves have very, very, very like subnormal fertility in the vast majority of the world for the vast majority of history. So slaves actually don't leave much of an imprint because they don't have children. And in fact, and they were often castrated in the, yeah, the eunuchs were but in the Arab world. Yeah. Least, and, yeah. And the, yeah. Actually before the Arab world and the Byzantines had castrados too. And obviously the Romans, right? So that was a common thing. But even if the children were born in the classical period, you know, infanticide was socially acceptable. And so they would just take the infant because like infants are like, if you're talking about economic calculation, infants are net sick. And so they would kill the infants if the slaves ended up having, so slaves tried not to have children because they knew that the infants often would be killed or exposed anyway. So the slaves didn't have offspring. And so modern Greeks are mostly descended from ancient Greeks. They do have some ancestry that's new, and that's actually Slavic ancestry. And I see this, I've actually looked at the data. I see it everywhere in Greece, um, especially in northern Greece, obviously. But so like, say like 5 to 25% Slavic ancestry from after like around like Five five eighty to six hundred AD, the Byzantine Empire basically. So when you see, um, so when you get a bunch of genomes from modern day Greek people, you see 
share genes with current Slavic people. How do you date those? How can how do you know that it's 500 AD? It's sure. Well, okay, we know it's 500 AD because the Byzantines took good records, and so there's a group of like I think they call them the Scalveni, and they're basically Slavs, and they show up uh, with the Avar Empire. The Avars were Turks, but the majority of people that lived under them were not Turks. They were mostly Slavs who came from what we would call like Moravia, southern Poland, etc. And they started moving southward. So before 600 AD, so you know you guys know that Yugoslavia, you know all the, that former region, Bulgaria, these are Slavic languages, but those regions were not Slavic speaking. The western part of the Balkans was more um, like Albanian, Illyrian speaking, and the eastern part, like in Bulgaria, was actually Latin speaking. And so that all changed after that period. So we, we know this from history in terms of the Scalveni didn't show up until after about 600 AD, and then they just percolated all through, you know, Greece, the interior, obviously in the north, uh, you know, the Republic of Macedonia, northward, uh, there was cultural shift in terms of now they speak a Slavic language. Genetically, they look to be about like 30 to, you know, 50% Slavic. Uh, so there was much more substantial uh, replacement there. But in Greece, you see it's more like, you know, 5 to 25%. But I mean, aside from the historical records, I can just tell you, okay, you pull someone who's a genome from say 1200 BC. Okay, like this is like a real example. You compare their genotype, you compare their letters of A, C, G, and T, you compare them to a modern Greek uh, and you see how different they are. And then you can also create a model. Okay, like, so let's compare it to um, a Slavic person, a Polish person. Okay, this is like an Urslav, whatever, right? And it's, okay, how much of the ancestry of this Greek person would have to be Polish to explain the difference from the ancient Greeks? And it turns out to be like, you know, it'll be like 17% or something. So this person can be modeled to high degree of statistical significance as an ancient Greek with some Polish ancestry. I see. Yeah, no, that is, it's amazing because, you know, I've, I didn't appreciate this until reading your Substack posts, how much the sequencing of the human genome ha- can inform history, right? Because they're, they're just, there's certain, there's like, uh, like, for example, you have a very long post about Madagascar where, uh, you know, the sequencing the genomes of, of um, I, I don't know what you Madagasi. would call it, Madaga- Madagasi, yeah. which is what, what you call people yeah. from Madagascar, can give you accurate information about, you know, the migrations to that island, right? Yeah. Which are not obvious and may not have been documented in this case. So like, what do we know about Madagascar from population genetics? Yeah. So if you just look at them, you can tell they're Asian and African. Right. Because they, they, they have like dark skin, probably darker than my, my skin yeah. in some cases, but their, their eyes and facial features yeah. look very similar to Southeast Asians or yeah. East Asians. Exactly. So before genomics, people knew that there was a Southeast Asian connection. The reason is the Malagasy language is is very close to Malay and Bahasa Indonesia. And this is something that, you know, missionaries, Jesuits, I think it was Jesuits in particular first noticed it because they went to, they went to Asia and you would come back through Southern Africa and that region and they would encounter, I mean, there's, there's slaves from Madagascar in Cape Colony and stuff like that. And so they realized, okay, they're speaking a language that's not like Swahili, that's not like the Bantu languages of Southern Africa. It is a language like Malay or Bahasa Indonesian. So it was known 500 years ago by Europeans that there was this connection. But the details were hard to work out. Uh, partly it's because, you know, Archaeology is not as well developed in this region of the world. In Europe, there's a lot of archaeology going on, partly because they've been investing in it for two centuries. And you know, if you're if you're um, government of Switzerland, you're going to invest in archaeology for Switzerland. So there's this bias that happens that way. So it has to be somebody else from the outside because it's a poor country. Okay, so let's set the archaeology aside, which there's some interesting thing related to that uh, in terms of the forest getting burned down. It looks like Madagascar was not settled by humans until at the earliest, probably around 2,000 years ago, but really perhaps closer to 500 AD. 
So 1,500. And, you know, we know this because there's all these endemic animals. Uh, so, for example, uh, the elephant bird, uh, the heaviest. Uh, Which looks like a huge, bigger ostrich. Kind yes. Of, and yeah. like, it's, it's like it's like an ostrich on steroids. Like they're, 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 they are very heavy and they were very heavy. And they were around until like, say, 1200 AD, probably the Arabs mentioned it. So probably the mythology of the rock, uh, which was like a huge eagle, um, was inspired partly by the elephant bird. So this is in Sinbad, the tales of Sinbad in the South Seas. So the Arabs and other populations or other, you know, traders have started showing up in Madagascar around this time. But it looks like the people who really settled Madagascar is very specific. They are from the southeast region of Borneo. So when you look at the language, the, Madagas the language of Madagascar, it is closest to a particular obscure dialect of, uh, I think, Sea Dayak, um, Austronesian language in Southeast Borneo. It's part of the Burrito language family. Okay, so we know this from linguistics. What you can do with genetics is, okay, let's look at the genetics of the people of Madagascar. And let's see, like, which segments of their DNA match other populations in the world. Now, you could only do this very recently. We just didn't have, and I, maybe we could get into at some point, you know, how far we've gone in genomics in the last 20 years, because it's orders of magnitude, yeah. okay? So this is not like, ooh, they could have done this. Like, they, first of all, they couldn't have done this 10 years ago. Just too expensive, too difficult. So this is like a recent thing that I'm talking about. But in any case, so what you look at is you look at the segments of the genome. So if you're related to someone, there's a lot of matching segments. The more distantly related you are to, to someone, the fewer and fewer matching segments you have. So this is a way that you can get a very, very precise level of relatedness. So obviously, you could just look at the Madagascar people and you can look at some primitive genetic techniques and see, oh, they're about half Asian, about half African. Like the precise number is actually like 40% East Asian, 60% African. There's a little bit 1% or 2% Arab and Indian, probably through traders and, and slaves or other things. Okay, so let's set that aside. So, okay, the East Asian component, what they did is like they looked at the segments and they're like, okay, let's match it to all sorts of populations in the world. Okay, well, all of the best matches are happening in Southeast Asia. So let's drill down in Southeast Asia. And so they do the best matches and they sample. And, you know, they knew that linguistically the language is like the Borneo language, like the Sea Dayak language. So they have some samples from the Sea Dayaks and it turns out that is the closest match in East Asia to the 40% of their genome. That's Asian. So genetics has just confirmed what we kind of knew from linguistics. So we know that these people show up, you know, all of these centuries ago and they settled Madagascar. Now the other part of their genome is African, is Sub-Saharan African. It's so the Bantu expansion, and I'm working on a post on that just for everyone out there, is relatively recent. So if it was a long time ago, genetically, they shouldn't have been Bantu. But genetically, they are Bantu. And so we know, and the Bantu show up in Mozambique, that area, probably around 500 AD, maybe a little bit earlier, but not too much earlier. And the, the genetically, they're, the African ancestry is Bantu. And there are some records, mostly by Arab traders, talking about it, of some of the kingdoms in Mozambique. Uh, they started, uh, there were like invasions, and there was interaction with, you know, what was going on in Madagascar. So it looks like the uh, Polynesian, the Austronesians, not Polynesians, Austronesians, because they're the, the Polynesians are the other branch. Uh, the Austronesians show up around 500 AD and they start clearing the land and uh, it makes it aware to the people on the mainland um, who just showed up recently, the Bantu, who are setting up their kingdoms, that, oh, there's this island there. And so there's a lot of gene flow. Like some of it is probably slavery. Uh, but one thing that I mentioned in my piece is I'm not totally sure that it was mostly slavery because one thing that happens when you have ancestry that comes through slavery is it comes through women usually because uh, male slaves... I mean, look, they're just not very high status. I mean, they're not going to get 
a lot of times, like the they're masters, not, they're not going to leave offspring often. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like we don't need to get into the sociological reasons, but it, yeah. you know, you see this in the Arab world. The African ancestry is mostly maternal. In Madagascar, that's not true. There's actually more paternal African ancestry than maternal African ancestry. And this is one of the most interesting things to me about population genetics is that because you have facts like mitochondrial yeah. DNA, yeah. only you only, only ever get mothers. it from mothers, your mother. daughters. Yeah. So my mitochondrial DNA came from my mother and her mother and her mother yes. and her mother exclusively. And yes. then my Y chromosome comes, correct me if I'm wrong, pr- pretty much unchanged from my father and unchanged from his yes. father and unchanged from his father. Yes. Whereas all my other chromosomes, there's this mixing and yeah, matching. Yeah, they're mixing and recombining. And, and so, re- yeah. I mean, what I would say is like there is some mutation and that's why we can create a tree, but it's very, very like low levels. Very low levels. And so basically, I think, I'm trying to do the math. I'd have to look this up. I think the probability is there's not going to be a mutational difference between you and your father, but it starts to be much more likely once you get grandfathers. Because I think there's like 30... But even if there were, it'd be so similar, right? Yeah, it's very similar. And you need whole genome. So just... So, I mean, but that makes that makes it so that you're able to... Excellent not, not just see, oh, there's African ancestry here. You can say it's coming mostly from women uh, breed, yes. breeding with this other ethnic group, or it's coming mostly from men taking wives of a different yes. ethnicity, etc. Yeah, so in Madagascar, the Y chromosome, like you're implying there, um, is informative of the fact that there's a lot of... I think it basically um, there's a skew towards East Asian maternal ancestry and African paternal ancestry, okay? And so, I mean, what does that mean? Um, one thing is it's possibility that the original settlers were matrilineal, um, so they passed, like, their cultural identity through their mothers, and so these African men were integrated into those communities. Um, this is actually, we see a little bit of this in um, among the Polynesians, where the, the Y chromosome is more Papuan, uh, Melanesian in some of these communities, whereas the mitochondrial DNA tends to be disproportionately female. So, I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, so there needs to be more exploration of this, but it's not a simple case of, like, oh, like, they brought some slaves. To me, in my opinion, it's not going to be a simple case that they just brought some slaves, because for the mainland because there's way too much male um, ancestry and also their cultural practices. So they speak a language that's overwhelmingly uh, Southeast Asian, but there are obviously loan words. Okay, we expect that. But uh, some of, um, so their religion is predominantly like pre-Islamic, pre, you know, before the world religions impacted Southeast Asia, they have an old type of Austronesian religion that has particular types of burial mounds, which you actually do see in places like Java and Borneo from like 2000 years ago. Okay, but, there are aspects of their religion and their magical systems uh, that are clearly African. So there's aspects and their music has a lot of African influence. So this isn't a situation where their culture was erased. So that to me, again, indicates that it's not simply just slavery. It's not an issue of subordination between two different populations. So for example, in the United States, you know, African-Americans, a lot of aspects of their culture are actually British, you know, obviously the religion, language, but, um, you know, I'll give you a concrete example, like jumping over the broom, it's apparently Scottish. You know, and it's because they came from all these different tribes and their culture was famously erased. And it was a conscious choice that the the masters made. Right. Um, They wanted to eliminate the cultural distinctiveness that made it so that they couldn't uh, rebel as like even a lot of uh, African-American English grammar constructions like you ain't doing that like ain't comes from apparently Scottish as well. It yeah. was a great Thomas Sowell essay um, yeah. and, and a great um, 
a book called Albion Seed that yes, I'm, sure, that I'm sure you're aware of. Yeah, It's a great book. So, I mean, my point here is like, okay, so genetics is telling us that uh, if we didn't have genetics, for example, I think, I'm going to be honest, I think what's going to happen is like Americans in particular would just be like, oh, well, you know, we know how this works. They were slaves. It was, right. That's what they'll say. But I'm just trying to say Genetics like, can complicate all yeah. of these narratives. And yeah. it seems, I mean, your post had made me realize that any historian doing deep history, history more than, say, 200 years ago, needs to be dealing with population genetics to confirm and test theories of migration, conquest, intermixing, yes. et cetera, because yeah. really we, we, we can now get accurate information here. It's amazing. And uh, another aspect of this I want to talk to you about is uh, 23andMe and Ancestry.com. You know, a lot, a lot of people are using this now. I just did mine about one month ago. So I, I'm about 55% Sub-Saharan African, 35% European, which with two thirds of that being Iberian Peninsula and one third of that being British Isles. And I'm 7% indigenous American. So I, I've been joking that I'm blacker than Obama and more Native American than Elizabeth Warren. Well, it's because your, your mother is Puerto Rican? Yes. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So, so that's where the, I get you know, 20, 20% Iberian, Spanish, et cetera, from Spain, and then 7% indigenous. And and one one aspect of it that I found interesting was... And I don't know if if I if this was confirmation bias on my part, but I was looking at the chromosomal pairings yeah. one two three, and it, it seemed like I could identify which chromosome came from which parent because my dad has like no indigenous yeah. and my mom I think had a lot of indigenous yeah. so e even though there was crossing over there was one that had tended to have much more indigenous sure. than another so I could s almost see that and and um, I, in my X chromosome for whatever reason maybe you know this they don't give you information about your Y chromosome yeah. uh, on 23andMe but my X chromosome was almost entirely indigenous yes which, which that's your mother, were, right? And that's your mother's mother, right? Well, actually, not necessarily because she has two X's. So, she has two X's yeah, that yeah, intermix, yeah. right? Yeah. So okay, so but somehow it ended up that my X chromosome was like, yeah, even though I'm happens. only seven percent totally indigenous, my X chromosome is like ninety percent yes. indigenous, according to twenty three. Yes. So um, just a couple of things. Um, so uh, for like you know the viewers out there, uh, listeners. Um, so Coleman is talking about like a chromogram. So there's you know like twenty two. Well, there's twenty three with the X. So you have twenty you have twenty two pairs, and then you have the X. And he's seeing these bars with different colors. Yes. And that's what the ancestry is. And so that's the representation of the linear chromosome. Uh, the chromosomes are arranged in length. Uh, chromosome one is the longest. Chromosome twenty two is the shortest. And he has the X. The reason he doesn't have the Y is the Y doesn't isn't computable in terms of the ancestry functions because as we discussed earlier the y is passed intact from the father right so so why would that make it not because there's no admixture in the y it's not mixing it's not recombining okay but on the x X, women have two pairs of X, and so there's recombination there. Men have one pair, so there's no recombination, okay? So there's going to be no recombination on the male, but two-thirds of the Xs in a given generation are found in women with a 50-50 population. So there's still stuff going on there. So that's why you saw the X. Now, um, in terms of these segments and what you're talking about, your intuition is correct. The, the technical term for this is ancestry deconvolution, and I'll give the listeners a simpler example, or the listeners and viewers a simple example. I have a friend who's a fourth Japanese, um, and uh, so her father is white. Her mother is half white, half Japanese. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at her chromogram, you actually, she, she is 24% Japanese. It's kind of what you'd expect. But um, you see, you see like one segment that's 100% European, like it's like English, German, whatever. And then you see another segment that is uh, 
it's it's mixed. It's 50-50. And it's um, alternated with East Asian and European ancestry. Every single one of those alternations, you know 100% for sure because that it's a recombination event in her mother. Like you see exactly where in the chromosome it happened yeah. because her mother has a Japanese mother and a European-American father. Right. And so this is like very, very interesting information. And this is one way that you can tell how long ago admixture happened. So I can look at, like, since you're Puerto, half Puerto Rican, with a certain level of statistical power, geneticists can actually look at your segments and figure out when the indigenous and African mixed into, you know, Iberian. That's right. Like yeah. That. Now, 23 and me actually, uh, they do have a function like that. They, they do they that say, that way. Uh, yes. You know, your British ancestry is from six or seven yes. uh, generations ago, et cetera. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what they're doing is they're looking at the length of the segments because every single single generation, there's recombination, the lengths break down. So when you look at Caribbean people, their admixture of indigenous ancestry, of Taino ancestry in Puerto Rico is like 300 years ago. And so the segments are not very long at all. They're very, very small. And so what you see is a bunch of segments of a very particular length indicating that the that the pulse admixture happened over a 50-year period, 350 years ago, things like that. When we look at the, the, the people in Madagascar, you can do a similar sort of thing. Statistical power starts to get a little wonky when you go beyond 2,000 years, just to be clear. But it's quite clear that the admixture happened, like, you know, mostly between 800 and 1200 AD in Madagascar, between African people and East right. Asian people, because the initial generations had long segments, and those segments would shrink over time with every generation of recombination. What about these other characteristics that 23andMe try to, you you know, they they give you these health assessments. So for example, one thing I was very surprised by is they tell you whether you are likely to, well, your urine smells funny when you eat asparagus, right? Everyone either, when you eat asparagus, either your pee smells weird or it doesn't. For me, it does. And I know that because it's impossible to ignore. Okay, yeah. Mine and I like up. asparagus. Okay. But it actually got that wrong. It got it wrong and I was surprised because that seems like exactly the kind of sure. trait that might be governed by just one yeah, gene. Yeah, I think it is. So, but uh, if it were governed by just one gene, how could they possibly get that? Well, right? there is a, um, last I checked, there is a 0.4% miss call rate. Okay. okay. What is that? What that does that means come from? That, um, that means that in 0.4% of the times that they make a call, it's false. It has to be higher than that, though, because they they there were three or four things out of you know thirty that were wrong for me. Uh, but but they were usually complex characteristics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's not a single thing. If it's a complex characteristic, the problem is, and you know, I think most people who follow this are aware of this. Um, you're you are a very genetically complex person with your ancestry, <laughs> so um, that makes it a I'm little complicated. bit complicated. Yeah, no, that's a little bit more tricky. So like, let's assume you have a training set. So this is how yeah. you do it. You have a training set. You generate a model, and you're then you have like test data. You put the test data into the training set. Well, if the training set is all European or all African-American. Okay. There's not going to be a training. There's not a training set to my knowledge of people that are half African-American, half Puerto Rican. Okay. With your ancestral mix. So the more primitive models, you know, I don't want to say primitive, but the earlier generation models, they tend to like have problems with people of mixed heritage in particular with complex traits because the training sets are different. Some complex traits, um, some genes don't operate in the same way against an African genetic background that they would in a European genetic background because um, there's enough genetic differences that gene interactions can have like some effect. I don't want to overemphasize this. This is, uh, I think the issue here is um, it's a big deal because you don't ever want to make a missed call on a disease. But usually it's actually like pretty accurate. Mm -hmm. The biggest difference is African to non-African because there's issues 
uh, relate to genetic diversity and genetic distance. But even there, you know, it's mostly right. It's just that like you can't have a 20, 30 percent missed call rate and stuff like that. That's way too high. That's I'm overestimating. My only point here is when it comes to disease and trade prediction. Yeah, it's going to be awkward if you're wrong. And so that's why they really emphasize, oh, well, we can't predict in another population as well and stuff like that. They have so that they, they try to predict even whether you have a fear of public speaking. So they have, uh, you know, and, and apparently 65% of people with my variant of this gene don't fear public speaking. Yeah. And it's true. I don't fear public speaking. Yeah. But there's no way in hell that like fear of public speaking is governed by one gene. That no, has it's to not. be it's a governed so by thousands of yeah. genes and, yeah. Yeah. and experience to some degree. Like, right. Let's like break it out. So the Mendelian traits, Mendelian uh, single gene, monogenic things, that's what you're talking about. So like cystic fibrosis. Everyone knows cystic fibrosis. I hope everyone, well, I hope it, well, you know. I'm saying. Cystic fibrosis is well known. Is that governed by one gene? Or, uh, it's or? at one. It's mostly at one genetic position, yeah. one genome. It's like CFTR. I think that's what it is. Anyway, so cystic fibrosis, you can look in there. There's different mutations in there, so you can't just find one single mutant. You need to like look for them. But in any case, um, cystic fibrosis is a one. It's a breakdown in one genetic location. There are other things like height, classical example, um, where there's you know, thousands of genetic positions in the genome that can be used as predictors. And that's because uh, your height is the final end product of uh, a lot of genetic effects distributed across the genome. And so what right. they'll do- It's like, you know, how how big, how tall is your shin bone and how tall is your yeah. thigh bone? It's, it's a complex to, developmental yeah, process, right? right? So of course, right? And so what ends up happening is what you do is like you look across the genome and you create a predictor, a polygenic uh, uh index, like they're changing the terms around to make it a little bit more, more PC. So just, uh, I think polygenic index is the last one I remember. So it's a polygenic index and it just shows you like, like what your predicted height would be based on your genome compared to all the other genomes out there in their training set. Training sets for height are pretty big. It gets a re and like height is about like 80 to 90% heritable in developed societies, which means that 80 to 90% of the variation in the population is due to genes. And so the predictive power is okay. It's pretty good. 80 to 90% heritable doesn't mean that that's like, you know, for an individual, it's 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 actually like a little lower because that's a st- population-wide statistic. Um, I don't want people to like be like in the comments, like, oh, he's confusing heritability with individual prediction. I'm not. But in any case, um, you can use these indices to make predictions, your risk of type 2 diabetes, all these other things. Uh, the way with type 2 diabetes, it's, it's like an odds ratio. It's like, oh, you're like 10x more you know, likely than the average person to get it. So they, I don't know if they had a training set where someone did fear of speaking, but a lot of these just have to do with your personality. So yeah, like you I take mean, the big I, five. I, my sense is like for 23andMe, it's self-report. Yeah, that is self-report. They do have that. But the issue is like, because your personality is like an endophenotype that has a lot of upstream, upstream variables. What do you mean by endophenotype? Uh, it's like, uh, like it's within you and it's not like, um, it's not like it's something not you can measure with a caliper or right. like, you know. Yeah, so this is one thing I suspect it's not really measuring people that don't fear public speaking. It's That's measuring out- output. It's measuring people that would report on 23andMe that they don't fear public speaking. Yeah, and you'll notice that there's going to be, be most... a confound in some way, right? Well, it's, it's not it a confound. Be, it, it's could just be, like... it could be overconfident people that are saying this. Okay, right? yeah, yeah. So what I would say there is, is picking up a downstream characteristic of your personality. So like if you want it, because like psychology, they have these like models with schemas with like boxes. The upstream is like introversion, extroversion. That's really what it is. I'm 90% sure. And that's about like last I checked, like 30 to 50% heritable. Like the the instruments for like for like psychology are like kind of weird and not really great at tech. So I think the heritability is underestimated. Um, it's much better with IQ because like, you know, psychometric tests are much more precise than personality tests, you know? But in any case, personality is also, I think most people know personality is also heritable, just not as heritable as height, right? And so the less heritable the trait is, the uh, more of it is due to environment, 
which is not necessarily like the external environment. It's just various types of noise. And so that means that those predictors are going to be weaker and weaker. Um, so, you know, when you're looking at personality related things, that is, uh, I would just say for entertainment value only right, right. now. So um, do you think at all about gene editing? I know a few years ago, Casper, uh, CRISPR and Cas9 were very much in the layman public conversation that you'll be able to go into, uh, uh, you know, a, an egg or, 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 or um, a fertilized egg and delete this gene and make your kid a, a little prettier, a little taller, a little smarter, et cetera. What is the state of that technology and how do you think about that? Yeah, I do think about that a lot. So this is like, I got to like switch into like a different mode now because uh, so what I'd like to tell people, so I have a startup, it's called Generate. Um, we do like genomic data storage management and analysis. So it's in the data science, big data space. And um, what I like to tell people, my investors uh, or you know potential investors when I'm pitching is like, okay, like a lot of my work, uh, my academic work, um, work you might see publicly is about the past. Uh, Generate is about the future. And so you're talking about gene editing. That's the future. That's not the past, right? And so now we're like talking about genetics in a different dimension. Instead of like taking the tips of a phylogenetic tree and working backwards, we are now like going to modify the tree somehow, right? So that's what you're talking about. And so people really interested in this, I would suggest like uh, go to the Generate podcast. I have an interview with a guy who works at a company that actually uh, it's called CRISPR QC, uh, Zach Rayborn. And what he does is like I talked to him for like an hour and 10 minutes. So if you want to get detailed on this, because he's the expert, is basically you need to figure out which you know, genes you need to edit, which positions to get the most fidelity. You don't want to do experiments on human beings. So a lot of the CRISPR work uh, that's done on animals or plants, whatever, like no offense to the animal rights people out there, you know, but with humans, you don't want to mess people up. So with gene editing, there's a bunch of technologies. Repominent DNA technology is the oldest one that goes back to the 1970s. So uh, it's very expensive and very difficult. There was a, there was, a, I think it was 1999, there was a horrible experiment gone wrong uh, where a kid died and he was a teenager. And really, gene editing didn't need to be done. And uh, it, you know, he died. And so there's been like a, a pall that was cast over gene editing for well, really the past generation. Um, the uh, the trial regime is much more stringent and stuff like that. Okay, so why is CRISPR-Cas9 a big deal? And it's not just CRISPR-Cas9. Like one thing I've recently learned uh, or been made aware of is there's a bunch of different CASs. So it's just, let's just say CRISPR-Cas, okay? Um, the reason it's a big deal is because it's cheap and it's easy. So it brings gene editing to the people, right? So the idea of gene editing abstractly, like you go in, you take a, a base pair region of the genome, you excise it, and you put something else in. Okay, that's easy to understand. How do you do it in an engineering sense? Well, it turned out bacteria, they have ways to do it because, you know, they have billions of years of evolution. And this was a bacterial system that was actually known in the 1980s and 90s, but they never thought to apply it. And that was like the quote genius. It was this like, you know, stumbling upon this that uh, Doudna and Charpentier, uh, Charpentier did, um, you know, they got the Nobel for it and everything like that, right? Um, Okay, so how do I think about it and how important is it? Well, I wrote an article uh, for a magazine called Return. I think I wrote it in like end of 2020 and I talked about, oh, they're going to like cure cystic fibrosis, sickle cell and all these things, like the really bad Mendelian diseases that you hear about, you know, and Jerry's kids, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And in the last three years, uh, and that that piece was actually only published on the internet like a month ago. And someone, you know, some guy was saying, well, this is like, you know, puffery. Like, is any of this happening? And I just like, you know, I posted a link to a girl who had been cured of cystic, or not uh, sickle cell in 2021. So they're working on sickle cell. With gene editing. Yes, with gene editing. They, they, they're already starting to work on sickle cell. There are already people walking around that were cured as adults. Um, they're working on cystic fibrosis. Cured as adults. Yes. So how does that work? I mean, if every cell in your body already has a copy of your full genome, yeah. how do you go in and edit? 
Yeah. So what you do is, uh, so this is the big issue. Gene editing's big issue for at least the, you know, developed organisms is how do you deliver the edit? And so the, you know, they use like vectors like viruses. That's very common. So viruses will infect your cell and, you know, uh, they're the payload that transfers uh, the CRISPR-Cas9, right? Um, So let's say lungs. I'm going to use cystic fibrosis as an example. You know, the life expectancy is like 40 to 50 now, I think with good treatment. And the issue here is uh, not the issue, the, the dream, which I think will happen within the next 10 years, really the next five, is that you will have a payload that will get in there and restore maybe like 10 to 20% of lung function. You're going to be like basically be able to survive and do everything except for like strenuous sports then. So with a lot of these issues, you just need to rescue some minimal level of function so they can live most of their life out. Uh, you don't need to go up to like the level of like, oh, I'm going to be like doing like high intensity, you know, exercise, right? So that's what I'm thinking for that with ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, where it's like, it's a, it's a muscle you know, uh, muscular, muscular dystrophy and stuff like that. Um, obviously, uh, when they fix it by like transfecting somehow the muscle tissue, delivering it to the muscle tissue, they're going to have some issues. They're not going to be very strong, but they're not going to like die of like heart collapse, you know, or like uh, asphyxiation because the muscles do not work anymore. Right. right. That's the dream. And so I think that's going to happen in the next five to 10 years. But, um, you know, there's going to be like pretty, you know, non-trivial changes. I don't want to say like radical, but non-trivial changes in like genetically editing, um, you know. So in agriculture, uh, these big companies like Bear Monsanto, I think Monsanto was bought by Bear, I think. But anyway, one of them. Um, they've been able to do this stuff for decades because it was extremely expensive and only they had the economies of scale. And also the regulatory regime is really strict. The thing with CRISPR technology, from what I've been told by my friends in plant genetics, is extremely easy. You can have like a small lab and start doing experiments. And so right now, the regulatory overhead is really putting a clamp down on that. But, you know, not every country is is going to, um, you know, regulate as much as the U.S. So I think we're going to see like a lot of different, you know, a second green revolution, possibly. That's what I hope for. You know, there's things with animals as well that they're working on with fertility and other things. So um, I think we're going to see that visibly first when it comes to more to traits besides disease. Okay. Right now we're going to focus on diseases that adults have, uh, try to fix all of the, and like, you know, I think like 5% of Americans have some sort of congenital disease. They're all, they're not all horrible, you know, Um, but um, that's millions and millions of people. You know, and so if it's cheap and like right now there's issues with price and stuff like that. Um, if it's cheap, I think most people will do it. And then, you know, I mean, I hope the drug industry is investing in this because they might lose some, you know, there might be some revenue issue with like people not needing to take drugs for the next like 30 or 40 years of their lives. Right. So they should they should like know to invest in this sort of stuff. Probably those pharma companies will lobby Congress to make this illegal and scare people about gene editing being um, too sci fi. That's my prediction. I mean, that's the, I mean, because it's a, it, well, it's, it'd be a very easy thing to scare people about because yes, editing yes. your genome, there's something very invasive and very. I mean, for for everything you want to say about why humans get scared of vaccines, the needle going in the arm and the concept of getting a small dead version of a disease, all these things make trigger kind of an irrational fear in people. Um, I mean, all of that is 10x, I think, for for changing your genome. I agree. I agree. Like one thing I've said before and I've said over the years is genes are not magic. Um, They're just a real thing. We understand them really well now all of a sudden, you know, because of genomics, Um, you know, uh, but that doesn't matter. Like psychologically, people do think they're kind of magical. So um, I want to pivot a little bit. Uh, you, You have all these interesting posts about how the genome relates to ethnicity and uh, mixtures of people and migrations and conquests and, uh, and, and all of this stuff. And this is relevant to the 
the question that has been you know debated ad nauseum in papers and and books and and popular culture and so forth is race a social construct or a biological reality and by race i mean the the sort of typical five or six categories that people tend to think about that we would check on a you know government census form white black asian hispanic etc uh so do do you conceive of these categories as as biological realities or as a social construct yeah i mean in terms of race um you know we're both american uh in america it's you know a particular thing which is different <laughs> than in other in other countries so obviously there's a social construct aspect to it um but you know we look a particular way and uh if someone was like you know two swedish men talking they'd be like okay like when did their ancestors come to sweden i mean they would immediately know that like we are not descendants of at least mostly Vikings. Like you might have a little bit of Viking in you actually. Maybe from because British African American. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, there's Northern England, the Dane Law. But the point, the point is, you know, when you say it's a social construct, um, people know what that means. So I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, the word Caucasian is still used in the United States for white people. It's not used uh, for white people in Europe. This is just like a weird thing. I mean, a Caucasian comes from Caucasoid. It's actually not a PC thing, but somehow it became PCified. Okay. Um, I have a friend, she was Finnish, and they got like they got a um, genetic test that they were going to do for some like experiment, uh, and it was from an American vendor. And it said like you know that you should uh, the predictiveness of this test is only viable for Caucasians. Issue in Finland though is they were thinking, wait, why would you design a test for people from Georgia, Armenia, or Azerbaijan? The Caucasus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in Europe, like, and if you go to Russia and you say someone's Caucasian, that's like saying they're you know. Like Mexican, you know, like Caucasians have like their reputation is like, you know, these dark uh, criminal people from the Caucasus that cause problems. Right. Obviously, in the United States, it's totally different. So, OK, yes, it is a social construct in some ways. I think that's like trivially obvious. You know, there are there are people like I'll give you I'll give you another concrete example. Uh, the whole like Latino thing, which was like Asian-American was just created uh, in the 1960s and 70s by American like governmental bureaucrats. You know, you know, I've talked to like Latino people who are white, they have blue eyes and like they want to do brown solidarity with me. And I'm just like, like, I'm brown. You're not OK. Like, can we just like cut this out? You know, like, obviously, like I get what you're doing. Yes, you have like a Spanish surname. So I guess technically you're an underrepresented minority while I'm white adjacent in the United States. But, you know, which is like literally true for a lot of things, you know. Uh, but I mean, we know what's going on. And this is like a social political idea thing. It has nothing to do with your ancestry, which is mostly from the Iberian Peninsula. Like you're a white person. Like when you walk down the street, they don't point at you and be like, yo, you're a brown guy. No, you're not, you know, when they point at me, they're like, okay, yeah. You know? So I, I, I think like, okay, yes, it is obviously social. But what I write about a lot and what I focus on, you know, like population structure, population history, a lot of times people get caught up in the semantics. And I mean, you've had Charles Murray on, you know, yeah. and you know, Chuck is, uh, he like abandoned the word race uh, because it's just got too much baggage and it confuses people. So you just use population structure, genetic ancestry and things like this, right? So I do have a question that people often come back with me, uh, to me, uh, you know, often they're like well-educated professionals, uh, you know, like lawyers, like this is usually lawyers actually. Uh, and they were told that race is a social construct, it has no biological reality. And then they do a test like you did. And then they're just really confused because wait, they're like, wait a second. How does it know? How does it know? How does it know if it's just a social like construct? 23 and me trace my ancestry to a specific town in Puerto Rico, a specific yeah. area of Puerto Rico where I happen to know through family lore is where my grandparents were yes. from. Yes. And so how it knows is because, you know, if you think about your ancestry, there's this genealogy that goes back into time hundreds of thousands of years and your genetics is a reflection of that genealogy. So my ancestors, you know, like my ancestors, 
you know, within the last 300 years, all seem to have lived in the Bengal province of the east northeastern part of the Indian subcontinent, right? And so they intermarried with each other. And so there's a particular genetic signature associated with that region of the world because of the people that live there. And then if you go back like 10,000 years, my ancestors actually lived in the Middle East, in Central Asia, um, parts of Europe, in the Indian subcontinent, you know, so it's like you're the outcome of, mul- of all of these historical events of mixing between populations. But each of those populations themselves are separable into individual units. And these individuals, they have their own stories and their own histories. It depends on population to population. So some populations are what we call uh, padmictic, uh, which means that, yes, they are varied within each other, but they've been mating as an endogamous unit for, you know, hundreds, thousands of years. And so they have a very, very specific signature of very, very specific mutations that emerged in that population over that time. And I think you, you gave the example of Ashkenazi Jews. Yes, they're the classic Jews, one. Yeah. yeah, the classic one. So the Ashkenazi Jews, and I have like several posts on this, Ashkenazi Jews. Jews uh, are the product of the fusion of a Western European-like population, a uh, Middle Eastern population, a Central European population, and they all, bas- basically the fusion happened by about like 1200 or so, maybe a little earlier. And then at some point in the medieval period, they, they stopped taking new genes in. They stopped taking like new, no, no more applicants to the club. And so for 500, 600, 700, 800 years, that's how it went. And now obviously in the United States and in Europe, uh, the social barriers are different. And so now Ashkenazi Jews, a lot of them, you know, are intermarrying. I have a lot, of, you know, we all have friends that are part Jew, part Jewish, quote unquote. But, you know, in 1500, um, basically everybody that was raised with the Jewish religion had Jewish parents. Now, there were people who were Christian who had been raised with the Jewish religion. But those people uh, would intermarry with other Christians and kind of like the genetic signal there would disappear. Right. Aside from the conversos, which are a special case where they, you know, crypto Jews that maintain their identity. But uh-huh. anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the way I look at this question is I think... Um, I think of race as a social construct that's inspired by biological reality, uh, you know, as, as opposed to something like biological sex, which just is a, a, a reality in, in my view, right? It, you know, biological sex clusters almost perfectly. If you you can separate people into XX and XY it's and, and correlate them with yeah. their their gen, genital type and you will get 99% yes. plus two groups, right? Yes. If you try to do that with... With genomes, and there, there, I know that you're aware that there are studies like this. You say how 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 many clusters should we separate the human the human species into just based on the natural principles of statistical clustering? You can cluster people into the five or six races, but the clusters are much weaker, right? They're like uh, I, I don't the paper that I looked at. It's like. 0.8 or something. Yeah. And that means that there are clusters, but they bleed into each other sure. very substantially so that you have probably, you know, you know, hun- hundreds of millions of people that are more genetically similar to people in a different cluster than their own. And they're, they're, yeah. the boundaries are very blurry here. Right. And, and the way that I think about it is it's a bit like the concept, uh, the concept of race is to biological reality what the concept of a month is to the lunar cycle, right? It's like um, clearly the fact our months are like 30 days or 31 days. That's because they're inspired by the lunar cycle, which is precisely, you know, whatever it is, 29.5 on average. But that social construct of a calendar month has just flown the perch of the thing that inspired it. So that if we were to discover tomorrow that the lunar cycle is actually like uh, 35 days, we're not going to change our calendar months, right? Sure. And race is very much like that. It's like whatever you discover about uh, the Madagascar on Madagascar, you know, we're not going to change the box that they check 
or or uh, you sure. know anything like that because the social construct has flown the perch of the thing that inspired it. So let's like back up on the science. What you're talking about the point eight. So I think what you're talking about is like a fixation index FST. And so the stylized facts, which is pretty much true, is that uh, you know. Like point one, basically fifteen percent of the variation between continental races. When you when you take like okay, let's like really concretely, when you take uh, a bunch of people from Nigeria and a bunch of people from Sweden, let's say a hundred, a hundred, and then you pull them together and you have three billion base pairs in the genome. Uh, you have about like you know four to six million variations per genome. Okay, so these these variations are um, the variables in your statistic that you're generating. How much of those variations? Are found within within the populations versus between the populations. So there's a subset of the variations that make Swedes distinct from Nigerians. You know this because they look very different, okay? But then there's a bunch of other variations that overlap between the two, and that's what you're talking about, right? Uh, so about eighty to ninety percent of the genetic variation overlaps, where you know there's like an, an adenine A in a Swede, or it could be a guanine G, and then there's a bunch of Nigerians. So it's like the guanines fifty seven percent Swedes, and maybe it's like fifty two percent. Nigerians. Okay. So just to give the, the viewers a concrete example. So there's a little bit of variation, but really it's just within the population. You can't differentiate. There's other cases like, so for example, uh, concrete SOC 24A5 is a, uh, it's a solute carrier. It's a cell membrane. But anyway, the TLDR is uh, in Europeans, uh, it's 100% in the A variant. And in Africans, it's about like 95 to 98% in the G variant. So when you're saying like, uh, oh, there's overlap, there's a little bit, but mostly that actually differentiates the two populations. So those are the type of genes. Uh, they're usually not that extreme. Those are the type of genetic positions that differentiate populations, right? And so obviously this is not like sex where um, it's kind of a clear and distinct category. You know, this is an aggregate and you're looking at a statistic. So I can tell you with really, really, really high confidence. Confidence, uh, that someone is an ethnic Swede or an ethnic Igbo, just like 23andMe did, that you saw. Uh, because when you look over millions and millions of variants, you're aggregating all of that information. And so you can actually like, say with a high precision what ethnic identity someone is, but it's pulling out of this vast pool and how you cut and like align the pool in terms of categories is somewhat arbitrary. It's not arbitrary insofar as like, so for example, um, if you do like a naive like phylogenetic tree, it's going to separate out Africans first. It's going to separate Khoisan, Southern Africans first. And then there's going to be a second tree and that tree will separate other Africans and non-Africans. And then the non-African tree will separate out uh, East Eurasians or actually it'll separate out West Eurasians, like Middle Eastern Europeans, and then uh, it'll separate out everybody else, which is like, you know, people in Australia, China, the New World, and then like South Asians will be like kind of in the middle. Anyway, you know, like there's going to be like a natural flow to that. But then like how many, how many clusters do you define? So for example, Asian American was created, you know, I think in 1970 census. Or maybe the 80 census, because I think Asian Indians were separated out initially. It was the 80 census. The Asian Indians wanted to be aggregated to Asian Americans because there's affirmative action contracts that they wanted. Okay, that's really the truth. But I've seen medical genetics papers where they've talked about the fact that uh, Asian people of like Indian subcontinental heritage are genetically closer to Europeans than they are to East Asians. They're kind of in the middle, but they're closer to you know on average. Okay, so wait, sorry, sorry say that again. Uh, people of Indian subcontinental heritage are closer to Europeans than they are to East Asians. Genetic. And and that is that, does that have anything to do with the the Aryan it does, connection yes. yeah, between? Yeah. 
Queen. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to get into the this. Indian swastika that was like okay. slightly turned as okay. opposed to the Nazi swastika. Okay, right? so I know we've been like getting like pretty dirty. I wanted like really I know cool. you have a long post on this as well, right? Don't yeah, 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 yeah. I've written about like uh, yeah. So um, there was a guy who like an Indian guy in Germany, Indian German, who claimed that there was a hate crime against him. And so there was a swastika on his car and people pointed out that that's not a Nazi swastika, that's an Indian swastika. So, so another Indian put... No, he oh, did he it. he did it. <laughs> Later they found out that he did oh it, but it was because like, he, he didn't did do wrong. the research. Like he did the Indian, because the, the cops immediately looked at it and they're like, we're German. We that's know what it's not a German swastika. <laughs> anyway, so that was funny. So yeah, so uh, a lot of um, a lot of populations actually, uh, so Indians are one, Europeans are another, did not really exist more than 5,000 years ago. So that, that's, what that's, why, that's why when I talk about the tree, it's not really a tree, it's like a lattice with like multiple nodes nodes that are verging and coming together. So like, you know, people that look like me, like, I mean, maybe like there was some people 4,000 BC, but not really before 4,000. You know what I'm saying? So I have like my ancestry, like I'll give you like a quick breakdown just so the viewers know. So I'm, I'm Bengali. I'm about like 15% East Asian, like Burmese, which is not common in the Indian subcontinent. But, you know, if you look at where I'm from, it makes sense. Like my family's from the really, really far North East. And then the rest of the 85%, I'm about like 10 to 15% uh, Indo-Aryan like steppe, like like straight out of like Poland, you know, from like 2,500 BC. Okay. And then the rest of my background is like 50-50 mixed of like, like something ancient in the Indian subcontinent that's related to Andaman Islanders and, you know, it's closer to East Asians and the other part is more like Iranians. I see. So, interesting. with these tests, what... Uh, how do they choose when to draw the line? Because like, uh, you know, we're all from like roughly East Africa, if you go back far enough. And then people migrated around 50,000 years ago, the major out of Africa migrations and so forth. But people have just been migrating sure. the whole time. So like, at what point do you say you're this because your ancestors at this time were here as opposed yeah, to there? This is an easy answer because I've been in the room like, so just so, you, just so people know, like, you know, so like I, you know, I do the Substack thing and I've done writing, but I've been working in this space actually for a decade. So I worked for Family Tree DNA. Uh, I worked for the co-founder of 23andMe, Linda Avey. She left in 2010. So I've worked and, and I've done like development for National Geographic for their tests and stuff like that. So I have a background in this. A lot of this, like there's marketing research, market research that comes in. So people want certain things and they don't want... People want it a certain certain far back, but not further. Yeah, because they don't understand. Like if I told someone that they were like, you know, 15% Western European hunter-gatherer, you know, like 35%... Uh, early European farmer and 15% uh, corded wear or 50% corded wear, there's going to be a certain subset of people that are going to be into that, like hyper nerds. But most people are like, what does that mean? So, so for example, 23andMe, um, they they had a, d a decision that was made early on. I think I can talk about this because this is so long ago now. They really decided to use nationality, like nation state names because people understand that. That causes some problems. So, you know, like, Every population geneticist who's looked at this will will confirm this. There's really no German genetic cluster. Okay, what does that what does that mean? That means that people in Eastern Germany are more like Poles. People in Northern Germany are more like Danes. People in Western Germany are more like Northern. So French. Germany was just made Germany. out of a multi ethnic empire. Yes, in the middle of Europe, middle of yeah. Europa, yeah. and so that's what it was. And a lot of people in the East, for example, were Germanized during the drive to the East in the medieval period. This is all like understandable by the history, but it's just a pain in the butt because a lot of Americans are German American. They want to know that. But like, how do you define? And there are statistical techniques you could do, but it's kind of like you have to like want a certain outcome. So you want to tell someone that they're German American. Okay. So you take these like four or five clusters, you find the particular unique signatures to them and you label them all German and you make sure that you don't confuse someone who's Pole or French for one of, you know, there are things you have to do, but this is not naturally coming out of the data. What naturally comes out of the data is that there's like- There's a Polish, there's yeah. a Ukrainian, there's a et cetera. Yeah. But the Germans are not, sorry, sorry. The Germans are not a natural genetic cluster. 
Uh, and that's been a, a major French to a lesser extent have the same problem. The British, they don't have as much of a problem. You know why? They're an island. island. So that's natural. Islands, a lot of this is just about natural barriers. Yes. Like nature creates barriers. Yes. And so people procreate with, uh, you know, availability, a, the availability with a limited heuristic. set of people for yeah. a very long time. Yeah. And that's how you get these clusters popping out. Exactly. Um, you were about to, though, explain the, the, the Indian Aryan oh, okay. connection. Well, I mean, I'm going to get like Indians mad at me. They always, <laughs> Indians really care about this sort of stuff, which like non, like they're, they're the ones who really care about this really deep ancient history just because of colonialism. So basically, uh, so I'll tell you guys my Y chromosome, the earliest place, this is like a pretty weird fact. The earliest place that it's been found in ancient DNA is basically around the Pripyat marshes, uh, border of like Poland and um, Poland and Belarusia. And so just like the, the sequence is quick, like ignore the, like you can look up the names, but they're not relevant. So basically what happened is around like 2500 BC, there was a, a, a group of Indo-Europeans called the Corded Ware Culture, um, a little earlier actually. Some of them decided to go west um, and they become like ancestors of like Slavs and other people, basically Central Europeans. Some of them decided to go east, which is like if you're going to draw the straw, that's the short straw, like going eastward into Eurasia when you're an agro-pastoralist is not good. But anyways, they became something called the Fatunovo Balanovo Culture. They basically like expanded like right between the steppe and the taiga, like in that like little zone where there was like agriculture was feasible in central Russia. They kept going eastward and they hit the Ural Mountains. In the Ural Mountains, they decided that they wanted to start killing each other. So they start creating these towns, these fortified towns, and you see evidence of these burials of people that are killed in massacres. And they were just, they just decided to like, go, go full war on each other. They invented something called the Light War Chariot around 1900 BC that spread all across Eurasia really quickly. And it looks like they were the mediators, these people. They're called the Santoshta people. They were the mediators of Light Warrior. Uh, the light war chariot. So in northern Syria, we have records of a population called the Mitanni, where their chariot class were called the Marianu, which is the Sanskrit word for young warrior. So it looks like these uh, Indo-Iranian people started spreading out of the southern Urals about 1800 BC, right? So the Indo-Iranian languages, they're spoken in the North Caucasus now, but they used to be spoken all across uh, Central Asia with the Scythians and the Sarmatians, all those groups. Uh, they got overwhelmed by the Turks. In Iran, obviously, they speak Farsi, Iranian, all those languages, those Iranian languages. Indian subcontinent, three-fourths of speak, people speak Indo-Aryan languages, which, you know, the closest languages in the Indo-European language family uh, to them are Baltic and Slavic, okay? And so what started happening, um, so there was always this idea of the Aryans because of languages. And, you know, like some people in India, they look kind of white. You know, we just thought people were like, okay, like, why do they, you know? So what's up with that? You mean aside from their skin color? Just if you look at their face, yeah. Like, 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 so, they, uh, the, like their facial features look closer to Europeans, you're saying? They're, okay, like, this is like really weird, but like, there's a group that uh, called Jots from Punjab. Like, Nikki Haley's a Jot. Um, and like, if you look at some Jots, they don't look Middle Eastern white. They look Eastern European white, which is actually what the genetics has ended up confirming. They have the highest proportion of steppe ancestry in the Indian subcontinent, about like 30% or so. So about 30% of their ancestry is like straight out of Belarus. That's the way you could think about it, you know, uh, you know, at least 4,000 years ago. And so, you know, there was always these suspicions, but what the genomics came back with was like, um, and I started doing the analyses when the data started coming back and I was like, okay, there's a minority of the Indian ancestry, especially people in the Northwest and the upper castes, uh, that looks more like your Europeans, and particularly like Eastern Europeans, which is weird. Okay. So if you're going to think that people in the Indian subcontinent have like Western ancestry, well, like Iran, West Asia, that's closer, you know? But so what happened was there was like mass migration of these chariot guys all over Eurasia. And uh, my Y chromosome, like you can find it in Mongolia, you know, you can find it all across Central Europe. You can find it in Sri Lanka. Like it's all over the place. Okay. So these guys went everywhere. So that's like the minority component. So depending on like what part of the, I did like an estimate that 
that like overall the whole of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, about 15% of the ancestry is from these Indo-Aryans. But they're critical because they brought the language Sanskrit, which is the ancestry of the Indo-Aryan languages, but it also affected like the Dravidian languages in the south of the subcontinent. And then like a lot of the skeletal structure of Hinduism comes from these people. So if I need to like um, learn something about early Indo-Europeans, you go to the Hindu holy texts because they actually like preserve that stuff. Um, a lot of the stuff in the Hindu holy texts, like you can find it in fragmentary, in fragments in like in Greek and Roman stuff, but they, you know, after Christianity and other things, like their oral, like traditional culture was really, really kind of fell away. Whereas modern Hindus, like they preserved a lot of that old stuff. So Brahmins, Brahmins are like, you know, their mantras like have elements that I think clearly come from the steppe, you know? And also like when you read, um, I'll give you, uh, just, I'll stop here because this is weird, but uh, this to me is like, we'll show you guys what's going on. So, you know, it's famously, they're the Ashvin twins or these twins, uh, these gods uh, that show up in Indian mythology. They're basically the equivalent of Gen Gemini twins in Greeks. And like, there's also twins in the Germanic mythology. Okay. So this is an ancient Indo-European primal thing. So I was like, I knew that when I was reading the Mahabharata for the first time. There's a part of the Mahabharata, though, that jumped out at me because I've read the Iliad relatively recently where um, someone has sex during the day. And that was like really immoral. There's a part of the Iliad where... Uh, um Helen and Paris have sex during the day. And that's like stated as very immoral. So I think like these sorts of weird things are fragments of like step taboos that are preserved and they have no meaning to us now. But you know, if you're living in like wagons, I don't know, maybe you don't want to have sex during the day because the wagons are rocking and like it's awkward. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? I'm just trying to give up. But I mean, like I, I read that in both those, you know, and like these are like two totally different cultures, probably separated 4,000 years ago, but it's still there, you know? Wow, that's amazing. I mean, you, you should write a book I mean, are you writing a book? Nah, about I can't. You know, like, I don't have the bandwidth. Like, I have a startup. It's called Generate. Everyone out there, if you want to look it up. So if the startup fails. It's just amazing <laughs> to me how many aspects of what we thought might be true about deep history sure. can be tested, yes. confirmed, or refuted with population genetics. Yes, and exactly. I, I don't think that your average history PhD right now has a population genetics course, but they probably should, yeah, right? If, you, if you're talking about demographics, because what this is, is demographics. And so when people say things like, um, you know, and like, I've, I have talked to historians and sometimes I'll just be like, no, you're wrong. And then they get pissed because they're just like, well, I have a history PhD and I'm just right, like, exactly. And well, I've been I don't looking really care, at archives like, and, but, yeah. well, the, the human genome is the ultimate archive. It is, it is, way. it is. And this doesn't go to like all the cultural stuff and right. there's a lot of stuff going on that- Which that, can't be tested this yeah. way. But I'll, you know, I'll give you an example. Like, you know, archaeologists are frankly, um, they're really butthurt. So now you pissed off Indians, archaeologists. Okay, what's, like, what's but you next? know my oeuvre. Like, I don't care. So the, the thing with archaeologists, they've spent their careers, like, assembling these pots and being like, well, the pots changed there and, like, this pot style obviously evolved from that pot style and yeah. stuff like that, okay? So um, one of the sh most shocking things that happened in the last 10 years is, uh, so, you know, Indo-European languages are spoken in India, Iran, and obviously Europe. And, you know, there was a hypothesis that, oh, well, maybe they spread from Central Asia or maybe they're indigenous whatever, you know, we need to get into the details. But what happened is, uh, you know, several different labs, mostly Eskid Wilderslev and David Reich's like groups, but whatever, there's other groups out there. About like 2015, they, they like started digging up samples from Northern Europe. Well, it turns out that it wasn't like elite cultural diffusion. They just like, killed everybody, you know, like it was bad. I mean, it was, it's shocking. Like you wouldn't have believed it if they, you wouldn't have believed it if they told you without the genetic evidence. Okay. So, you know, there was like more than 50% replacement pretty much everywhere in Northern Europe. But in some places, like, so for example, in Sweden, 
there's a group of farmers called the funnel beaker culture. They created these great megaliths. So there was a megalith culture. Stonehenge is the most famous, but there's plenty of others. The megalith culture people were originally from, you know, the Mediterranean, really Anatolia originally. They brought farming to Europe. Uh, those people were like really, really decimated by the arrival of Indo-Europeans between 2300 BC and 2900 BC, depending on where they came in from the east. So, But in, 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 in Sweden, they totally exterminated the funnel beaker people. There's no genetic imprint of the funnel beaker people. In Britain, the Stonehenge people, uh, about like 10% of the genome is from them. So they mostly overwhelmed them. You know, there are other areas like Southern Europe, it's like 30 to 40%. So mostly they're still mostly like the original farmer ancestry. So this like really shocked people. And this was a big deal because there were some anthropologists and archaeologists that had created these models of like, okay, well, this corded, so specifically, there's something called corded ware pottery um, that's associated with the arrival of, we now know it's a culture from the steppe. They're basically from Ukraine, near the Yamnaya people. Um, They ran around with maces and they smashed people's heads. Okay, like this just like stylized fact, but it's true. But like there's these archaeologists that developed this theory that, well, actually they came from the baskets of the previous people. And so they just kind of evolved culturally into this new culture. No, they just were killed. Okay, we know that now. But like these archaeologists have been doing this for 30 or 40 years. So all their papers are wrong. So they're kind of pissed because they're just like, look, we put a lot of work into this. And I'm like, yeah, but you're wrong. You know, I mean, I don't say that. We brushed a lot of dust off. Yeah. And I'm not trying to hate. So actually there is an explanation for the corded wear. Um, So the word lady is not an Indo-European word. It looks like about 25% of the ancestry of the corded ware is from a culture called globular amphora, which is the last Neolithic culture in Poland. And it looks like it was that there was what we call male-mediated migration. That's just a way for saying that, like, you know, the women were taken. And so these women brought some of their cultural traditions. So a lot of the words for certain farming things in Northern Europe are not Indo-European because they didn't farm. They were they were pure pastoralists when they first arrived. And also the corded ware baskets, those those patterns, or not baskets, um, the, the pottery, they probably were local women who were did the pottery, but the men who showed up from the step, they're used to baskets. So the corded the cords, that shade that uh, imprint, it's mimicking baskets. So it's a cultural synthesis. The pottery is from the native people, yes, from the women that they took. But the the unique like corded pattern is probably a reflection of the fact that these guys they grew up with everything in baskets. So now we know. So another post interesting post you had along these lines was the the deep roots of the Han Chinese. Oh, yeah. What has population genetics revealed about the large, well, I think it's still the largest country in the world. Maybe India may have overtaken well, it. Well, just but recently, but the Han are the largest ethnicity in the world. The largest that ethnicity in, in the world. Yeah. And your post revealed to me the most continuous in the sense that Han Chinese people today have the most in common with the unearthed bones of Han Chinese from thousands of years ago. Yeah. So what I'm what I'm getting at here is like so. David Reich's book, How We uh, Who We Are and How We Got There, has a bunch of stuff on this. State 2018. It's still pretty pretty accurate. There's still some changes now. But in any case, so you have Europe, and so like let's say like we have like three, let's say four hertz of the Eurasian like white commune, like the civilized, you know, whatever, like 2,000 years ago. You have Europe, Mediterranean. You have West Asia, the Middle East. You have India, and you have China. And then everything else kind of comes like Southeast Asia is kind of a combination of India and China in a lot of ways culturally. But um, okay, so when you look at India and Europe, uh, the ancient DNA is quite clear. There was a Massive like cataclysm about like 4,000 years ago. And there was admixtures and changes. So people in Europe 10,000 years ago looked nothing like people in Europe today. Like they had very dark skin. They had blue eyes, dark hair, very like robust, coarse features. Okay. Like they were totally they had dark gen- skin, but blue eyes. Yes. Totally different people. They're what called Western hunter gatherers. Google it. Yeah. Those are the indigenous people that were there at the end of the ice age. Okay. Right. And so in the Indian subcontinent, uh, there's probably no West Eurasian ancestry. Like, so half of the ancestry of the Indian subcontinent today was not there. Uh, they're, you know, you know, dark skinned people. They looked more like Africans. Although like, if you look at Andaman 
Islanders. Like they have like, you know, Africans, you know, curly hair. But like, if you look at their faces, you can tell they're not African. Like, you know, I mean, it's just like not all very dark skinned people look the same, believe it or not. Um, so you could kind of, you, I've seen Andaman Islanders where I'm like, oh, that kind of kind of looks Indian. Like you could, you could see like Indian features that came from those type of people, right? So anyway, so you had those type of people there. Obviously Europe and India has changed in radical ways. Europe more than India, but both of them changed radically. You would not recognize the people. In West Asia, it's a little different. West Asia had like a lot of genetic differences at the beginning of this period with agriculture, but they kind of like mixed and mushed into like one like whole. That's the way I'll say it. So West Asia changed in terms of like people from Iran were totally different than people from Syria. The genetic distance is actually the same as modern Chinese versus Northern Europeans back then. And those people mixed together though. So they created just this amalgamated whole. Okay, so that's the change there. China is the weird one, or not weird, um, but it's the it's the exception in terms of like the Neolithic people in Northern China exhibit rough continuity of people in modern day Shaanxi and, and Hainan and like those areas in the Yellow River. There's some stuff going on in the South that's different, but there was some gene flow back and forth. There was some mixture. There was expansion out of the North. I mean, you know it from the post, but basically it wasn't totally different. Like it was like, okay, um, I can believe this because the stuff from Europe and India, if you're talking to me 15 years ago, I wouldn't have believed it. It just doesn't comport with what we know in anthropology and, and other things. Like, like, how would like these people move? Like, why would they be so, so brutal? Are people that evil? Are the people that meet? Yeah, they are. You know, that's what we know now. But in China, it's like, okay, there was some migration here and there, but basically the base is what you would think it is. So the people that live in China today are descended from these Ice Age foragers that were like wandering the Yellow River Basin 11,700 years ago. That's not true in India. That's not true in Europe. Uh, there's new people that came. In West Asia, there's been like a lot of mixing in a way where it's hard to recognize that they are the same people, even though the basic elements are there. In China, it is a predominantly Yellow River Basin expansion. Uh, I think the Erlitu culture. Uh, though that is remarkable, in some way it would match with how the history of China is generally talked about as pretty much the oldest continuous civilization that has one people with a self-concept and, you know, thousands of years of dynasties that have seen themselves as one nation, right? So in some ways it, it confirms China's yeah, self-image, Chinese self-image, right? say 5,000 years of history. And that's kind of like wrong because the really first date you have is I think like the defeat of the Shang by the Zhao. And I think that's like 1076 or 1100. We know this because um, they're into astrology. There's particular alignment of the stars and the moon and all these things. They record it. And so we can actually use like astronomical techniques now to, to get the specific date. So we have that date uh, around like 3,100 years ago. And so that's when the history, we know that the Shang dynasty from the Oracle Bones, we know that they were the Shang dynasty. So we have writing. We don't know about the previous dynasties, I think Shia, but that's probably the Erlutu culture. But basically, I think 5,000 years, I think that's, I hate this phrase, but it's not, not, that's not really wrong. You know, I mean, it, it is kind of right. Um, and the continuity is true. Like Indians sometimes like to say, oh, we have continuity. But I'm like, yeah, but like Indians are a synthesis of different things. So yes, Indians do have continuity. Like if you want to know what the original Indo-Europeans were, were like, you go to the Vedas because they've actually like maintained that. But genetically and culturally, look, I mean, you know, like, so like Indian gods are obviously, even the earliest Vedas show like subcontinental influence. So like the sun god is in a chariot, just like Helios, but like he's waving at parrots. Okay, that's like, that's like something's changed there. There are no parrots in the Eurasian steppe. So like Indians have like changed. So I think like, you know, because like Indians will sometimes argue with me, like we're just as ancient. I'm like, yeah, but it's like a little different because the Chinese, it's like a Chinese person from the Shang dynasty is genetically very similar to a modern Chinese person. And the Shang dynasty, the Oracle Bones, those characters is the ancestor of modern Pinyin. You know, I mean, that's right. pretty, that's pretty amazing. It is remarkable. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. So uh, this brings me to a question which is controversial right now because of the new Cleopatra, I guess, movie on, I mean, are you on Netflix. Be, get me canceled for the 
the 30th time. Yeah, that's the point of this podcast, man. What did Cleopatra look like? Because people are upset that she is, uh, Egyptians are upset that she's being portrayed by a black woman, not even a particularly dark-skinned black woman. Yeah, she's a mixed-race British black woman. Yeah, so what did she look like? Yeah, well, we know what she looked like because they're like, there was a bust that was created when she was being held, I think she was, that was when she was held hostage in Rome under Caesar, and there's like coins. She looked like a Balkan woman. I think there's like records of her having maybe Auburnish hair. She had like a big nose, like not necessarily even a Roman nose, but just like a big nose. Uh, just, you know, cr- pretty Balkan features. Most of her ancestry, we know what it is. She's Macedonian, um, you know, Greco-Macedonian is what, maybe the way you want to say it. And then she has a little bit of Iranian ancestry through uh, her um, Seleucid and uh, Pontic uh, And to lineage. this point, would she look more like a person from that region today? Or, or yeah, has she that, would look like a person from Greece. Is what I, I think she would look like a person from Greece, Like honestly. a woman from Greece. Yeah, I mean, I, 80% of the ancestry in the Levant um, dates to 1800 BC. I'm saying 1800 BC very specifically because there are some ancient DNA remains from the port of Sidon and you take those people and you like substitute them into modern Middle Eastern people and it's like 80%, okay? 20% is new stuff. So that's that's why I say numbers like this and with specific dates. We have ancient DNA, I have a date, I give you a date and I give you the percentage based on the calculation, right? And so, um, but her, the issue with Cleopatra is like, it's not controversial, she's known. This is just American ideology uh, infecting history. The reason I get angry about it is like, there's a lot of history we don't know and there's history we do know. This is history we really know. She's just making stuff up yeah. and like most people, you want to say like, oh, well, they know, they'll know the truth. Like they don't know the truth. And a lot of the Afrocentric stuff, um, the Hotep stuff is starting to like bleed into the regular discourse and it's like, I don't really care. Like if like, you can think whatever you want to think, like you shouldn't take it seriously, right? But then like intelligent people are taking it seriously now. Right. So it's like, what, what, what do we do about this? So the Egyptians, are, I mean, they know that she's Macedonian too. Like they have a whole history and I have a post about uh, ancient Egyptian DNA. Basically like modern Egyptians, like they're mostly from ancient Egypt. They have a lot more sub-Saharan African ancestry than they did in the past. And that's because the Islamic period brought in a lot of that, right. you know? And then there's also like, there's also some Northern ancestry, like the Mamluks were mostly Kipchak Turks and Circassians, but. Yeah, so I mean, I, I remember, I think people got upset when Zoe Zaldana was was tapped to play, was it Nina Simone? Yes. And uh, I understood that because she she looks nothing like Nina yeah, Simone. Like yeah. she was just like, Nina Simone was a dark-skinned black woman. And it's, that not, it's, was, not, it's not true to the spirit of who Nina Simone was. It's, yeah, right. And it, like just as a viewer, I do want to see somebody that really looks like that. I mean, that's part of the uh, suspension of disbelief. Yeah. It's like I, I go to a movie theater, I go to a show. I, you're asking me to suspend my disbelief that this is Nina Simone for a few hours, and that becomes more difficult if she doesn't look anything like Nina yeah. Simone. So I understand what, where the Egyptians are coming from. Like, they want someone that looks like what we know Cleopatra may have looked like, and if you don't have that, um, you know, it's 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 more difficult to enjoy the show. And look, does, does some is there some aspect of colorism to this, of like Arabs not liking the darker-skinned? Probably, yeah. almost certainly. Yeah. That doesn't mean we should rewrite history based on, you know, current ideology. I think, I really think you should try to be faithful to what people look like in, in these movies. Yeah, I mean, I I tend to lean towards that. Um, I will say that I don't really care about the new Bridgerton thing. Uh, what's the new Bridgerton uh, thing? It's like the Queen. Oh, is it the new, the Netflix show? Yeah. They, they, so, have, they have black people in the show, right? Yeah, and like basically Queen, so, okay, this is a thing that started on the internet, the early internet. So Queen Charlotte of, I think like her title is like something of Mecklenburg. She's a German princess. But some of her, like there's a, there was an internet rumor that she was black. And she does have like a Portuguese ancestry, like in 1300. But anyway, um, but she wasn't black. Okay. There's like one photo, there's one painting that looks like maybe looks 
African features, but like no one ever described her like that. I mean, she lived 200 years ago and there's plenty of other paintings. So it's like, it's just made up. Okay. But no one cares about Queen Charlotte in the United States. No one's ever going to look her up. Like no one's actually going to, there are people who think that yes, Queen Charlotte was black. Like this is big in the Hotep community, I think. But the reality is she's just not historically important. So I don't care. You know, it's just not something that I'm going to like freak out about. It's Bridgerton. Everyone knows there weren't black and Indian people in uh, Regency area. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The Regency area aristocracy. Like it's just some weird somehow, fantasy. Somehow changing it completely is less upsetting than getting That's it true. slightly wrong. That's true. Because because when you change it completely, you That's understand you're thing. in like a fantasy alternative right, right. now. Totally. But with the Cleopatra thing, it's a docuseries. Yeah. And, you know, they're like portraying it as, you know, like her family was black, I guess, like some from the pictures that I've seen and whatever. It's not that big of a deal, but it's annoying. And it's also an issue where it's like the media knows they're just not going to call them out on it because, you know, you don't want to be. So a couple of years ago, like four four or five years ago, Vox actually, Vox.com explained that, um, you know, Cleopatra might have been uh, black because there was a tomb that might have been her sister uh, in Asia Minor. And it could be that her sister was black based on the remains. Now, they made this, first of all, it's not actually conclusive that it's her sister anyway. This is really funny. Uh, they concluded that she was black based on the skull science, like literal skull science. Based on phrenology. Yeah, because I actually, I clicked through because I'm like, how would they say this? But it's literally like, uh, you know, and like, that's not always wrong. So you're but- saying Vox is pro-phrenology. In certain contexts. No, but I mean, it's, like, it, it's, it's, it's all about like the, the means and the ends, right? Yeah. And so I think it's really important uh, if you're a scientist, if you're a scholar, you know, the truth matters and it doesn't matter if you hurt the feelings of, you know, the people that you're ideologically aligned with, but that's just not very, that's not like people still like pay lip service to it, but let's get real. I mean, I mean we all saw what happened during COVID. People like flipped and changed around based on the coalitions. It's, I mean, it's history. No one cares about history. I mean, I care, but, you know, I'm not normal. No one cares. They're going to lie. They'll, they'll lie straight to your face. Yeah. I mean, that happens in the Indian contents that happened. It was like uh, when it was quite clear that there was like an Indo-Aryan migration from the genetic data, mm-hmm. um, the Indian media. So wait, wait t- tell me why does this upset some people in the Indian community? Uh, because there was a theory. So there's there's a couple of things. One thing is um, the British colonialists realized that the languages of southern India, about 25% in the Republic of India now, are Dravidian. They labeled them Dravidian. They're not Indo-Aryan. They're not Indo-European. And it's quite clear when you listen to them. But you look at they're, – they're not Indo-European, OK? And so they're like, oh, OK, well, you know, like you guys aren't any more close to the people in the north. And then it turns out the people in the north are descended from Aryans or they're different people. So there's no like real India. It's just something that was like made up and we can like, you know, rule you because like you know and stuff like that there's lots of natural divisions going yeah, on here. They, language they tell, culture yes. etc and they would tell like upper caste northern indians what you know like we're actually aryans like you and you know we're actually not aliens like you know we're, we're all indo-european and indians actually bought into this they thought that their ancestors were from like the arctic and all this stuff and actually it turned out it's not like that's not that part is not false okay uh, but in any case in terms of that's where like the, the shantashna were like in the urals like it was cold uh but in any case um and so what happened is like the chinese the Indians now kind of like the regnant ideology, partly related to Hindu nationalists, although this is like very new to Hindu nationalists themselves. The Hindu nationalists had no problem with the Aryan invasion theory for a while. But a new thing is like, well, actually, no, we were always here and that everyone's the same and we're indigenous and all this stuff and and stuff. And it doesn't make any sense because like that means Indo-Europeans have to come from India. Why is there no genetic Indian ancestry like all over the world? Why is it like European-like ancestry in India, et cetera? It doesn't really make any sense. But, you know, um, I did see Indian scientists straight up saying that. And the Indian media, I mean, media is like they're 
dumb. They don't know what, what's going on. They just like, you know, the science says. So what the scientist says is what science says. So they're going to say it. So they just like straight up like lie. Because like people would email me. They're like, wait, that's not what the paper says. I'm like, exactly. But nobody knows. They don't yeah. care. You know, so I feel a lot, you know, seeing that happen in India, I'm a lot less judgmental about other cultures. After also like, you know, things in America where it's like, you know, I'll give you like, I'll tell you guys like a funny story. Because like, so um, I think it was like 2012. I don't think I was, in, well, maybe it was earlier. I don't think I was in grad school yet. So uh ta back when he was still engaged with comments. Ta-Nehisi Coates. Yeah. yeah. Uh, on the Atlantic. Um, he, uh, he was like talking about race and I was just like, well, you should like talk to a scientist. And so I recommended Neil Rich. Uh, and Neil Rich is, uh, and he's emeritus, so I can say this and he's not going to get mad, although people still get mad. I'm going to say this. He published a bunch of papers in the early 2000s that you can like identify someone's racial identity with not that many markers. Very easy, like 30 markers. 30 genetic markers. Yeah. Like, well, it, well you know, population informative, discriminative markers, but you can do it with 30, you know? He, but you he, have to pick the 30 carefully. Yeah, yeah, because they have to be the ones that are very that genetically are distinct. Yeah, you know? right. But, you know, he just published some papers. There were some statue papers and he yeah. just showed like, look, like, Population structure is real. It's easy to figure out, blah, blah, blah. And so, uh, you know, in the early, in like 20 years ago, that was basically, like, you know, race has a biological component, you know? And that was what, you know, he made a big, you know, I mean, he's very old and he's very eminent. He's done a lot of other things. I don't want to overemphasize it. But anyway, so I recommended Neil and like Tanahasi reached out to Neil. Neil like talked to him. You read Neil's interview. He's like being totally PC. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I see how this goes. It doesn't matter like how famous and how established you are. You're just going to tell them what they want to hear. And like multiple people like uh, like Zach Beecham. I don't know if he's still at Vox where he is, but you know, I got into an argument with him once where I was like, well, not all geneticists think race is has no biological basis. He's like, well, did you see the Ta-Nehisi interview with Neil Rich? And I'm like, well, I recommended Neil Rich. So, of course, I, you know, but I'm just yeah, and saying. And he like, lied to Ta-Nehisi. Goes, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Maybe some people criticize me for saying lying, but I'm just like, he told Ta-Nehisi what Ta-Nehisi wanted to hear. That's, it's quite clear. Like, he just couldn't. I mean, my point was like, there is. Is this at the point when Ta-Nehisi was really a big deal? Not or, yet. But not quite yet. Yeah, right? but he was still, I mean, if he was like listening to me, he wasn't a big deal. You know, so, but I mean, my point don't is sell like, yourself short. I, no, I mean, this was a long time ago, you know, but yeah, I mean, I'm just saying like, he wouldn't, he wouldn't respond to my emails now, right. you know, and I just was like, just like, look it up, but you know, whatever it is what it is. And, um, I still like do, I still do my own thing, but like the rest of the world has, uh, agreed on certain different things. Let's put it this way. Like, you know, scientists are way more, I mean, woke wasn't a thing like 15 years ago, you right. know? So whatever it is. It is the truth is what it is. And like, you know, uh, it'll all come back eventually. Well, I think there's a, I know some people find this whole line of discussion to be taboo and suspect. But I think uh, I don't think there is much to fear here if responsible people are curious about um, history and migrations and population genetics and 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 so forth. And really the totality this this. I don't want to uh, be glib because this stuff can be used to divide people, and it is, but it, just as much it can be used to show us how much we have in common. And um, really, one does reading your substack, one does not get the sense of a, di a divided humanity. One gets the sense of a, an ultra-complicated human story going back thousands of years, uh, and um, and that's why it's really interesting for, for me to read, and I, I highly recommend other people read it too. It's called Unsupervised Learning, right? Yes. Okay, so Razib Khan, Unsupervised Learning, and then before I let you go, can you just talk a little bit about your startup? Yeah, yeah, what yeah. are you doing at your startup? Yeah. What's it called, et cetera? Yeah, yeah, so yeah, thanks, thanks. So, um, you know, this is <laughs> most of my time I actually do spend on the startup. It's just like, um, it's, a, it's a platform as a service, business to business, so, you know, it's not one of those like sexy public-facing things. So, you know, 
we talked about 23andMe and Ancestry. Uh, they use um, they use genotype arrays right now. And so the 23andMe is like 600,000 markers. Ancestry is like an 800,000 marker. So these are Illumina arrays. Okay, so these are like chips. Uh, you put you put the sample on and it returns positions at these markers. So these markers are variable markers. They're very informative. But the whole genome is 3 billion base pairs. Okay, so it's 3 billion. And you're only getting, you know, less than a million out of that, right? Um, and that's still a lot of information. But my belief, uh, and so I've been whole genome sequenced. You can find it. Just type Razib Khan whole genome sequence onto Google. You can like look at all the raw data. Um, I put it out there. Uh, my son, my older son is the first human who was sequenced before he was born. You can like Google MIT tech review Razib Khan. Like that was profiled in 2014. So I'm a really enthusiast for genetics and personal genomics and like genomics, like what it's going to do for our future. But the issue is with data. So the first human genome was $3 billion to sequence in today's money. Right now, you can get a medical grade whole genome sequence like you could for $200, okay? So the price point has really come down. So we've gone from one genome 20 years ago one human genome to probably around a million. Um, it's hard to keep track of. Now it's so like commoditized. So we have a million, right? But you know what's like, to be cliche, what's more informative than a million genomes? A billion genomes, mm -hmm. right? We're going to get there. Um, but how are we going to store it? How are we going to analyze it? So a lot of the data data storage uh, rubrics or maxims for like, you know, a dozen genomes don't really apply to thousands of genomes. You know, this is starting to get some serious, serious. There's going to be, um, as of like, I think the NIH predicted the next year, there's going to be more genomic data in the world than there was data on the internet in 2010, right? So it's like, we're getting into like petabytes. It's it's crazy. So how do we manage this? Um, obviously, I like I like what genomics can tell us about the past, which it's can do massive amounts. I think it'll be able to tell us a lot about ourselves. Uh, like, you know, you, you talked about some interesting funny things, right? But it's, this stuff is going to get serious soon. Um, already, like, uh, babies, newborns that, that don't flourish, uh, they're sequencing them, and 40% of the time, they can figure out a congenital problem because they obviously can't tell you what their problem is, right? So this is going to get really actionable and serious and ubiquitous. So you have all this data. Uh, my, my company, Generate, um, what we want to do is make, you know, obviously the data storage and management easy, accessible to scientists, and then also the analyses, we want to make them rewarding, rich, and also easy because a lot of these things, um, this this is a field where, you know, genomic sequencing cost beat Moore's law for seven straight years. So it's gotten so fast that Moore's uh, law being that the price comes down yeah, by how yeah. much every I think it's like is it every year it goes down by half? Something like that. Yeah. And so basically we you know, genomics outran computing for a while. Um, and so it's really hard to manage the data, analyze the data. So one of the reasons that I believe we are not where we should be when it comes to medical prediction and all these things is just because like geneticists, we were not trained with the mindset and the tools to analyze big data. You know, like a lot of people that are, you know, like Gen X or older were trained on Excel. Uh, yes, the younger millennials and Zoomers, some of them are trained on, you know, using Python, you know, databases and, and like in SQL databases, but not too many. And so um, this is just a situation where our culture uh, has not matched what our technology, we have the technology, but we don't have the culture. We don't have the skills. So ge what Generate wants to do is make a lot of that easier. We want to have a platform for people to do science. So they mostly focus on science instead of information technology. And this is not super exciting on one level, right? Like I was talking about like, you know, the ancient history of Madagascar or the, you know, whatever, all of these things that we're talking about controversial things. But this sort of stuff, uh, nuts and bolts is what's going to make it so that we can actually have the genetic future that was promised 20 years ago, right? So there were a lot of promises made, a lot of it, what, a lot of it has not panned out. We have not cured cancer. So 
like, let's talk about cancer. Um, a third of us are going to have cancer and die of cancer. Okay. I mean, if we had lived forever for 120 years, it would be a higher percentage, right? But cancer are mutations in your cells. So Steve Jobs was one of the first people that had cancer genomics done on him. It was super expensive then. It's, it's pretty cheap now. So yes, there's one whole genome sequence uh, for you right now. And that's like one and done. But if you have cancer and they need to like do tissue sampling and stuff, they're going to have to like sample multiple times. And so the data needs are going to be really big. But we shouldn't have to think about that. We shouldn't have to think about data needs as a limitation, you know? And so there's a lot of companies. My company, Generate, is one of them. Uh, there's other companies getting into the space. There's some of the big boys getting in. Amazon has a good genomics unit. But you know what? Uh, to anyone out there who has like a biotech company, uh, good luck uh, getting Amazon to do work for you because like they're looking at big farm. You know, so like big companies like Amazon, they want to work with massive companies. They, they want to work probably with like six big companies, you know, and make a bunch of money off that. We're here to service like the smaller companies that still have needs, but that don't want to hire like an IT tech team. So, you know, increased productivity, more science, uh, brighter future, all of those Silicon Valley things. I'm all about that. And, um, you know, we have a lot of the technology already. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when we have like, you know, like you could just like take a sequence yourself and like put it in with a thumb drive into your computer? I mean, that's going to happen probably in 10 to 15 years. I predict it will. I just realized there's some question I want to ask you. I, for, I forgot to. Does epigenetics mean that intergenerational trauma is a real thing? No, I wrote a whole thing. <laughs> I know you a, did. I, I, have, I have, so I have friends who like, I have friends in academia who do not tell people that they work on epigenetics anymore because they are sick of having to deal with the questions because it's all misleading from the media. Um, and so they just say that they work on gene regulation. So no. So epigenetic trauma is basically something happens to you and it's passed out genetically uh, to your offspring. There's really no evidence for this uh, in humans. There is some evidence for the, they're called insults, that these things can happen in plants and maybe in certain types of mice, but uh, there's no evidence in humans. Uh, epigenetics is a massive deal. Like that's why like, you know, like your cells are different in your nose versus your liver, right? It, it's actually like- Because each cell has a full copy of the genome. Yes, so yes. Which, which part turns on to tell this to be a liver cell yeah. as opposed to a bone cell? Yeah. So epigenetics is this whole molecular biological process that's a really big deal. And that's why so many people study it because stuff like cancer also happens through epigenetic modifications and mutations, right? Um, epi mutations or whatever. So it's a massive deal. But what people really want to care about is like, oh, like there was a famine in the Netherlands in 1945 and the grandchildren are sicker. And that probably, honestly, most people in the field think that that's probably publication bias where it's just like, yes, it's not, they didn't do anything fraudulent, but randomly some things will just happen with the p-values you guys know, right? So yes, uh, I have a post if about it. If you have a 95% confidence interval, that means 5% of the time something's going to just be wacky by exactly. chance. Right? And, and, and you really like the p-values for some of these big data fields. Like for example, in genomics for genome-wide associations, which like detect the Mendelian diseases that you're talking about, the, p, the real p-value is like, you know, rule of thumb is like 10 to the negative eight, you know? Yeah. And so it's just like the 0.05 is not even applicable there. So yeah, I have a post. It's free. You guys should check it out. December, I wrote about epigenetics. I wrote, that was like that I wrote, not because I have a passion for debunking public myths, but because like it, I did it as a service because I heard so many complaints privately. And you know, um, so I mean, yeah, maybe someday I'll write a book, by the way, uh, if I have time after the startup, like so Stephen Pinker was like, you know, telling me he's on my podcast too, but uh, yes, I have a I podcast heard, as I well. That, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Stephen was like uh, giving me a hard time about that after we were done. About not writing a book? Yeah, and I was just like, you know, when I have the time, bro. And then like, uh, but he did say. I mean, I think if I, a book, well, go, go on. He said no, but what? he did say the epigenetics piece. Like yeah. he said that to everybody because he was like, I was thinking about writing something like this and you already did it. So yeah. I was like really happy. No, I mean, it would be great to have a book just about population genetics overturning all these things we thought were true about history. Right. That just like that, that would be awesome. Okay. So my last question, which will probably make me seem like an idiot, but I, I just want to get your potted 
quick response to this. When people say we share 97% of our genes with a banana, right? They also say you, you, you share 50% of your genes with your sister. How can this be true? Yes, we must mean it in two different senses. So can you like explain that? Yeah, yeah. So I have a post on this, by the way, for anyone who's here. I think that July 30th or something of, anyway, it has like chimpanzee or something in the title. I have a post on this from July of 2022, last year. But in any case, I'll explain it really quickly. Okay, so when they say they're you're 97, like 99% like a chimpanzee, what they're actually doing is they're looking at the 3 billion ACGs and Ts and they're doing like a comparison with the other 3 billion approximately. Like there's slight differences in the sizes. But, but basically just doing a one to one comparison positionally, right? Exactly. And so like the sequence identity is very close. I don't think it's 99. I think it's less than that, but whatever. It's around there. Okay. But when they say you're 50% related to your sister, that means, okay, if you do like a comparison, you're actually like 99.9% identical to your sister, but that 50% is assigned to the genomic segments that physically came down from one set of your parents. Does that make sense? So your 50% of your genes are from one one of your parents, okay? There's recombination, and so so I'll get, make it concrete. Uh, my daughter is 30% my dad, 20% my mom. It's because recombination made it so that there was more of yeah. my dad's genes that went into uh, my daughter. Yeah. My son is like closer to 20, 25, 25, and so that's the variation where like that's why you're not 100% obviously. And then 50% is the average mm-hmm. because you're getting like a 50% sampling from each parent, right. right? But that doesn't that doesn't refer to what the state of the genome is. The genome, the, the, the strands are actually much more similar than that. But it's just like if you labeled, if you had labels of strands of like maternal and paternal grandparents, um, what it's doing is it's adding, it's like those are labeled as different. That's yeah. called identity by descent. And it, this is actually not a stupid question. It's a even if, question. Even if some of the specific nucleotides are actually identical the vast in, majority in those are. two. The vast majority are because most humans are identical. But what, what, what they're doing is looking at identity by state. And with like something like 23andMe, you can look across the genome. And so let's say like 1% of you, this is like, this is way underestimate, but let's just say 1% or it's an overestimate. 1% of your genomes differ from your sister. But what you, what you, what you could do is like, if you look across the segment, you can see where the mutations are. And if the, the pattern of mutations will tell you if the two segments are matching, right? So when you look across a long enough strand, you can figure it out enough differences that you can tell who the strand came from. So it's quite clear that it's from like your maternal grandfather as opposed to your maternal grandmother. And so that's, does that explain your, answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. That's a good question. All right. Well, that's all I have for you. Razid, thank you so much for coming on my show. That was my pleasure, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.